Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I mean, my goodness, some weeks it just hands it to you. We've got so much to talk about at this point. I mean, we come into the Friday and you've got the Silicon Valley Bank going down. I'm going to talk both with Victor and, of course, the host of Canadian Bitcoiners, Joey Tremprilli. He's with us. Uh, there's so much to talk about in that space, but it's part of the overall market. I mean, you look at the gyrations in interest rates, in currencies, obviously in stocks this past week. As I say, no shortage of things to talk about. But I'm also going to focus a bit on tech today and uh, looking forward to having Blake Colbert with me talking about uh, the various changes, especially, you know, that whole TikTok story. You know, I've been begging people to pay attention to the fact that it's owned by a Chinese company and Chinese companies by law have to be subservient to the Chinese uh, surveillance state, to the Chinese security state. Uh, if they don't, they could go to jail. I mean, there's a lot more to that story. I'll talk with Blake with that. Plus, as I say, we got a shocking stat. This is a beauty. I'll tell you, worried about your cost of living. Well, I got another one for you here. And of course, we've got a goofy award for you and so much to talk about on that score. So I got a full show. But first, Higher grocery prices were front and center in Ottawa this week. We have NDP leader Jagmeet Singh working hard to oversimplify the cause of rising grocery prices. I guess for him, increased transportation costs or higher wages, not just at the grocery stores, but right through the supply chain, uh, including manufacturing and transportation, lack of competition, uh, price increases from the government's dairy commission, the high cost of interprovincial trade barriers, lack of competition. Those are all just secondary or tertiary factors. No, it's got to be corporate greed. It comes down to a single overriding variable and the familiar bugaboo of what he deems excess profits. Although you got to note that neither Mr. Singh or others who subscribe to the anti-corporate ideology bother to define what specific level of profit qualifies as excessive and what level is okay. I mean, the reality is that consumers don't like high prices and often seek scapegoats. Most want simple answers along with a target for their frustrations, which politicians are happy to supply in spades. But that approach leads nowhere if we're looking for solutions. But only the most gullible would believe that governments and politicians are actually looking for solutions. I mean, the oversimplification of complex issues is far more about political grandstanding than finding a meaningful understanding of the issues, which could lead to some sort of practical or workable solution. In the case of high grocery prices, come on, there's a ton of factors that are coming to bear. It's not a simplistic issue. It's a complex one. You know, as I said from the right at the opening, and it bears repeating, though, because we're in this onslaught of simplicity. But think about this. Come on. Obviously, a low Canadian dollar pushes the cost of food imported from the U.S. And we're down three cents. I mean, what, since the beginning of February? But much more if you look at this time last year. Milk and dairy marketing boards keep prices artificially high. Then you've got interprovincial trade barriers and the impact, especially on meat, because it limits competition. The lack of competition in general, though, in the grocery business keeps prices higher. We've got supply chain issues that have resulted in things like an increase in perishable food arriving at stores much closer to the good till date creates a lot more waste and someone's going to pay for that. And we talk inflation all the time because it's driving wages up. But as I say, across the entire supply chain, and we've got government regulation, we've got government taxation. And speaking of government, it's noteworthy, it's very noteworthy that politicians always seem to forget to mention the impact government policy has on prices. 
Come on, we've got increased payroll taxes. In some provinces, you've got medical service plan premiums, uh, you know, having gone up. Add to the cost of business, and they get passed on in the form of hired food prices, as do, as I said, interprovincial trade barriers. I mean, every economist agrees that restricting competition keeps prices higher, but that overall inflation is also pushing at every step, as I said, of the supply chain. But we've got increased gas and diesel costs. Well, that adds on to the cost of transporting food. And all of that is a direct result of government policy. High gas and diesel prices are just another area where politicians express, oh, we're really worried because gas prices are high. But they forget to acknowledge the role they pay. I mean, roughly speaking, come on, about 30% of the price at the pump is a direct result of government taxation. But that's not the whole story. No. I mean, the whole story is that government wants the price of gas and diesel to rise. Why? Because they're trying to discourage people from driving. That's why the carbon tax is scheduled to go up every year into 2030. But of course, once they do go up, governments sort of go, oh, my goodness. But that adds to the cost of transporting food, as I said. That gets passed on to consumers. Meanwhile, by the way, promised rebates to businesses have yet to really appear. But again, I want the point to be the cost of fuel taxation gets passed on to all of us as consumers. And keep in mind, nobody makes more money from gas and diesel than government, not the producers, refiners, or retailers. And it's the same with housing. Despite all the moaning about taxation or about lack of affordable housing, politicians consistently forget to mention the massive role that taxation and regulations plays by the three levels of government to the added cost of new housing. Now, I'm going to talk more with Ozzy about that later in the show. And it's kind of shocking on that, the cost of owning a house, once you've been able to get into a house, the cost in the first year alone. But for now, I'm going to just say that government is adding tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cost of a new home. But sure, they care about affordability. This is what I call, by the way, the big three. When I look at inflation numbers, I always focus on food, energy, and housing. Three areas areas that none of us can avoid. I mean, we're going to eat, we're going to live somewhere, we're going to use energy. And government plays a monster role in the price increases. But you know what? I'm not holding my breath waiting for a commons committee on that one to hold hearings into why we have those prices. And I'm pretty sure when you go to the grocery prices, they're not going to be talking about the role of government. Hey, by the way, let me, before I go on with the show, just thank everybody who participated with us at the Polar Plunge. It was so much fun to have people actually jumping in with us. I found that made the event uh, a lot more bearable for me, the cold water wimp. Uh, It was terrific to have them come down and support Special Olympics. But we had, I think it was 376 different people uh, uh, donate to the cause. And uh, I thank Ozzy so much and, and, and Gordon my brother, for doing that, but everyone else who came and participated or donated. I'll tell you, I I just made me feel good about our community, as simple as that. I mean, when we all focus on something positive, and a lot of times it's not positive, and I'm part of the culprit, I point it out, but it's not positive. But my goodness, helping people with intellectual disabilities, it can't get better than that. So I want to just say I can't be more sincere in saying thank you. not a week that goes by that you couldn't do a whole lot about technology and about how we're communicating 
I, it's hard to even express that and do even minor justice to it. Coming up, by the way, I'm going to talk to Joey Trempilli of, of uh, Canadian Bitcoiners. You've got to talk about Silicon Valley Bank a bit today, but all the things every day you seem to get hit with. I want to take a little different direction here. This is one area that's doing very well uh, in technology, but exploding, impacting every one of us. I'm talking about just whether it's beyond streaming video, of course, but it's, you know, uh, TikTok's been in the news recently. So I'm very pleased to get Blake Corbett back with us. He's the corporate uh, chief corporate development officer of BB uh, TV. Uh, Blake, first of all, let me just give you, give me the one minute promo on what BB TV is. Sure. BB TV is, um, I often describe the company as the largest tech company nobody's ever heard of, but um, listed on the TSX a couple of years ago, BB TV is a Vancouver based um, headquarters for, um, providing YouTubers primarily, but YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat, people that upload content, they need a, uh, they need tools and algorithms, which we provide to optimize their views. And, um, and so that's what one of the many things BBTV provides along with, um, direct ads and, um, and a variety of other services. So we're an ad based, we do an ad rep, we do a rev share on, um, um, with the, with the creators and we help them optimize their content. Let me come to one aspect of that, or at least the same area, because it's been in the news, and that's TikTok. I mean, I'm looking at governments finally waking up to the facts that, uh, you know, it's owned by a Chinese company, and every Chinese company, you know, is obliged to work with the Chinese security state by law in China. And uh, obviously a sensitive situation, but finally it seems to be dawned on uh, some people in government, hey, this may be a problem. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it's been a growing problem, I, and I find the solutions are not many. Um, uh, it's quite clear that, that, that the Chinese government has access. Um, there's something called Project Texas, um, which has been underway for a while by TikTok to try and contain the information in a way that would satisfy rules and, and requirements. But um, taking it off of government devices would make a lot of sense. These um, um, this particular app, um, TikTok, as viral and fabulous as it is, is um, does also um, capture an enormous amount of information and not just data on your phone, but how you use your phone, what you see, tracking all kinds of things. We've seen you know, a variety of reports on what they're able to do and what they capture. Um, so it's, it's, it makes sense for government devices to have this removed. In the early days, People had their personal device and their, you know, in a, a government issue or company issued device. This is um, that's that's gone away, it seems. But um, I think it's important for a variety of reasons for um, for governments in the first instance to separate these. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but we're just talking about in our shocking. Uh, sorry, our quote of the week is that the naivety vis-a-vis -vis China and the security state and the domination of it. So, again, uh, I'm, I was pleased to hear them take this seriously. You know, because they're they're not our buddies. So, <laughs> indeed, you know what? I'm very impressed with China. China is um, has a very very long term view on on many things that we don't have a long term view on. And we look, you know, we 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 enter this debate, you know, in the stock market with quarterly reports and a variety of other ways. Um, but China has a very as as a as a as a country has a very long term view, and um, and they are they have spent years securing resources in Africa and other parts of the world. Um, and, and the digital world is just another resource to mine. Um, the, the most interesting um, piece of information I read about TikTok and, and the Chinese government was that, um, that the internal app in China is not TikTok. It's called Douyin. 
and it is um, uh, it, it operates very very differently than the than the TikTok app that the rest of the world gets to use. And if you're under 15 years old, there's a restricted amount of time that you're allowed to use the app, and it shuts itself down. It has there's only certain amounts of content that you certain types of content that you can see on that, mostly STEM type of content. There are a variety of restrictions that that, that China has imposed on their own internal app. And, and I find um, when governments look at banning the app, it's really tough to ban things. I mean, look at the UK. The, the, the greatest thing a record or a book could ever have happened to them in the UK is that the government bans it because it just boosts sales, right? Yeah. You know, this is just not a solution. But requiring the Chinese government to put the same restrictions on the external TikTok app that they do internally might be a little bit of feeding them some, some of their own medicine. and 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 a, and a potentially viable solution. I don't think banning it is actually going to work, but um, getting it off government devices, I think, is 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 at least a first step. Let, let's turn a bit to the the the, the normal or normal the Canadian consumer market, American consumer market, and just that area that you work in. And I, I would think one of the things I've when I've been reading, and we've been on that story about TikTok for a number of years because I was concerned about who's owning what companies out of China and you know the in, in integration, you know, like Huawei and the Chinese military, et cetera. But I'm looking and I think YouTube's got to be a winner out of this because there's a there's an area that continues to grow. Obviously, you, usership, they evolve, that kind of thing. And you're working directly with it. Indeed. Indeed. I, you know, one of the things, one of my observations in the last two years that I've been at, uh, at BBTV has been to see and watch what YouTube um, is and does. I used to think they were kind of old and and um, and didn't really have the dominance that they that they originally had. And, I'm, and I've been proven wrong. Um, the, um, what, what TikTok has done in the last few years is completely change, you know, the whole world of short form, invented short form video, the way this, this video is, is, is prepared, consumed and offered. And, um, and the, the, the impact has been greatest on, you know, Facebook, it's, it's various subsidiaries, Snapchat and YouTube, but the, the response by uh, YouTube in the last year and a half has been um, has as as truly shown me the power of YouTube and the depth of that um, um, of that platform because um, YouTube has not only created shorts um, and really pushed their creators to um, that are on the platform for long form video to um, to um, to produce more shorts um, they have also now started to monetize those and they're schooling TikTok in how to monetize. One of the greatest criticisms of, of TikTok for any of the users that are on it or the, the you know, the, not the users, not the consumers of it, but the people that produce um, um, TikTok videos, they don't get, they get a, a, a pennies out of the fun. They don't have a proper way of monetizing um, on TikTok and YouTube is showing, you know, TikTok and the world how to monetize this short form video. And, and, and February is the first month in which payments are actually being made to creators um, on the YouTube platform that have monetized shorts. Well, I'm certainly one of the people who's been watching that far too long on YouTube. The shorts, I mean, I, I call it my rabbit hole. I go down there and I can't resist just waiting, you know, and next thing I know, an hour and a half has passed. It's like well past midnight, uh, yeah. you know. So it's obviously been a success, at least in our household, but I suspect everywhere. But that's also part of this other thing that I know you've been uh, talking about, writing about, is this whole idea of, you know, traditional TV you know, I'm not saying I'm staying up later and watching TV when I said that. You know, I'm watching yeah. the short uh, video on on uh, YouTube. 
But I see this everywhere. I mean, uh, and I know I got this stat from the work you do that the 400 million TVs get sold and they all have that sort of connectivity. Yeah, this is very important. We've we've spent a long time consuming our video and our um, and getting our movies, TV, and the like in uh, in different ways onto video onto onto mobile devices on our laptops, you know, through Netflix and everything else. Um, and um, and what we have found over the course of the last three years during the pandemic, there, in the first two years of the pandemic, 400 million um, TVs were sold, new TVs. We all put you know replaced old TVs or put new ones on the wall, and every single one of those has a chip in it that makes it a connected TV. And what that means is it has an OS, an operating system in it, whether it's Samsung or LG or, or whatever. Roku now has a television as well. But it allows you to watch and consume and pull um, content without having a cable connection. You need an internet connection, of course, but you don't need to have a cable subscription. And, um, and what we're seeing happen and, and the statistics that we see is that there's been a huge increase in, um, in the amount of content just YouTube statistics, but but overall, the amount of content that is being consumed on connected TV, CTVs in Canada, gets a little confused with um with our with one of our favorite television um uh, networks, but CTVs or connected TVs, um not only are they um have they proliferated, they're everywhere, but they are when we watch content on a, on a connected TV, we watch it for longer, we sit through ads, and 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 our behavior is different when it's when we're sitting back and we're watching um content that's up on a wall versus when we watch it on a mobile device um, or on a laptop. And that has a pro- has had a profound effect on, on ad rates, on content, and a variety of other things that we're starting to see happen. Well, the other thing you deal with is it kind of exciting. I mean, I'm always jealous when I read these reports of some, you know, in, in quotes, a YouTube influencer and those kind of things. I read their, their uh, monetization and the success they've had. My goodness, some people are doing well with this, you know. And of course, Indeed. that's what you're helping companies do and yeah. individuals yeah. do. But uh, can you give us just one or two tricks that some people do a lot better than others? Because we're talking such huge amount of money here. And Indeed. Indeed. In fact, YouTube often um, regularly, annually um, produces the, t- the statistics on the number of people and the dollars that are paid out to. We call them creators. You know, an influencer is is really somebody on well, um, yeah. on, 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 on Instagram or, or a platform right. like that that is that is changing people's views. Um, and creators are those that that produce content. And, right. and, you know, look, YouTube's got a variety of content on it. It's got some very, very high production, um, you know, television shows. That are um, that are there only, um, all the way down to um, somebody just in their room, um, you know, recording a, a video blog, and and everything in between. They're categorized. You can they're they're um, you can search for it, but there's there's a very sophisticated um, system of discovery that YouTube has developed. It's their algorithm, um, and what you watch, what you choose to watch first, will influence what comes up on that bar on the on the right. Um, and then what you choose to watch next off that bar will influence what comes next. Mm. And this process is um, has been amazing for me to watch and see because there are people, as you point out, that that their in, their entire income is derived from their share of the ad revenue from the videos that um, that they produce on 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 the YouTube platform. Um, one of the things that they need to do so so and there's a, there's a, there's a there's a, a very sophisticated ad-based platform, and by far the most sophisticated is, is YouTube's. Um, I can talk about what other ones are next, um, but providing that income to those, those creators means that they can 
leave their day job behind and focus on just this content and really turn it into something quite special. And we have people on our platform that are not just one person producing videos. They have teams of 15, 20 people, editors um, and, and copywriters um, and schedulers that, 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 you know, that, that are part of the process of producing two, three, four videos a week and, and staying on that, that wheel and, um, and, and managing this. And what they do need to do over time, you know, YouTube over the last year has required them or really nudged and, and insisted that they produce shorts content as well as their long form content. And so that's more work for them. And they're not, they weren't monetizing that content. They weren't getting any money for the, um, for the views on shorts because it wasn't monetizing. Now that's beginning so that that'll start to, that, that'll start to pay off. But, um, but the sophistication and depth of this platform is something that advertisers are aware of. Um, and it does provide for um, for income um, and and, I'll, and indeed a lifestyle for um, for a long list of um, of individuals, not just in North America but but all over the world. Let me give you that nightmare Barbara Walters question here, and that's that if somebody's sitting back and says, you know, but what's been amazing is the eclectic variety of. Uh, subjects that people have been able to gather a viewership for, you know, the things that mainstream TV just couldn't break down that to that degree, you know, uh, and I'm just thinking, where would one get started? And I know it just, just throw me, <laughs> throw me a bone on that one. But if somebody's sitting there saying, you know, I, I love this subject, I know a lot about this subject, I think there's others like me, where would I get started? So um, the beautiful thing about YouTube is that you can get started just by, um, by you know, creating an account and putting content up on there. And in fact, as, as, a, as a, in the process of learning, I've put a, um, a YouTube channel up to see what kind of information and statistics you get back. It's very sophisticated. Once you get to a certain level, you've got to have a, a minimum number of subscribers and, um, and views. You can apply for what's called the YouTube Partnership Program. And that means that uh, once you're accepted into that, you become a monetizing YouTuber. And so everybody on the BBTV platform is, is at that level or higher. Yeah. They are monetizing. And that means that they get 55% of the, um, of the ad revenue from the ads that are shown on their videos. And YouTube takes 45%. And that money comes to them every month. So, um, so getting started really is just, is just starting to do it, learning and knowing what's out there. And, um, and getting your videos um, posted initially and building that um, that subscriber base. Once you get large enough, um, a platform like BBTVs will help boost um, and optimize the the views. Um, um, but you got to have enough views to begin with for this for this to operate. But we have algorithms that will go through and they'll when you upload your video, it'll say change the the words in the title. You know, um, take this word out, put this word in, you'll get more views. Description wow. hashtags. And even an algorithm that runs through it will go through the video and pick out the right um, thumbnail. If you pick this thumbnail, you'll get more views. So you get a boost in views from that. And, um, and, and these become, when you get large enough, these, these services become necessary. They're just part of, the, um, part of the process. What an exciting area, though. What an exciting, explosive. People always talk about where, where the future is and what's growth and all this. And we look at this, it's obviously had spectacular growth. But, uh, you know, I, I just put a smile on my face listening to all of that there. Blake, uh, thank you so much for finding time for us. And I, I hope we can visit again in the near future. And again, what other people can do, if you're looking to get some help, go to BBTV. Go to BBTV. Blake Corbett is the Chief Corporate Development Officer there. And this is exactly what they do. They help people, their businesses, uh, monetize their content. Uh, on YouTube, maximize their uh, content on YouTube. Blake, thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. Thanks very much. See you, Mike.
I'm going to grab Michael Levy and bring him in here. Hey, Mike, don't want to throw this at you out of left field, but, you know, I was having one of these thoughts this weekend. Don't roll your eyes. Uh, one of these thoughts this weekend. You know, of course, we're raising interest rates. Uh, you know, I'll get to when the Bank of Canada held study this week, but we're raising interest rates at the U.S. and, you know, across the Western world and, you know, in Canada up till this week. And I'm thinking, well, of course, there's, you know, they're looking for an impact on me buying, discouraging me from borrowing, discouraging me from buying, easing inflationary pressures. But you know what? If I'm a manufacturer, it's also discouraging me from manufacturing. I mean, the cost of my business just went up is my point, you know, and, and maybe what if they go too far in this and actual supply contracts, which wouldn't surprise them theoretically, but maybe it contracts so much that that's why inflation can't get lower because demand continues to stay on top of it. And, you know, both sides of the equations uh, contract and hence you haven't made much progress. Mike, I, you know, that's that's almost a unique thought, because in the reading that I do, that that actual conundrum did not come up. And the fact is. Yeah. That this cost, these increased costs are going to cost everybody, going to cost transportation, going to cost the suppliers, going to cost the manufacturer. And of course, the end consumer, it's going to cost us too. But if the manufacturers have to pull back because their costs are spiraling, how does that ease inflation? Yeah. So it's going to be interesting. But so I just thought I'd throw that out. As I say, I've got a gift. I can give people headaches. But let me let me come to the Bank of Canada this week that they've stayed flat. No one was surprised by that. But then that begs the thing that uh, you were alluding to about a week ago, which is, well, can we really stay different from the U.S. without the loony falling, making all commodities higher, making all U.S. imports more expensive, again, contra to their efforts on inflation. So we're flat, but they're not talking about that in the U.S. Well, they're not. And in fact, the market before uh, the Bank of Canada raised their rates had the Fed at a 50 basis point. I mean, the market was pointing to 50 basis points. I still think it is. And Jerome Powell at his meeting, at his press conference left absolutely no doubt that the Fed is not only going to raise, but they're prepared to speed up interest rate hikes. Whereas the Bank of Canada is a wait and see and what, what do we call it? Data dependent and uh, to, to, yes. to see what's going to happen here in Canada. And I do not think that they're going to follow the lead of the U.S. just because the U.S. is doing it, Mike. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. And the market is really allowing for the U.S. to hike 50 basis points, even 75 basis points. They think that the weakness in the Canadian dollar is already there and may not fall precipitously because it's discounting what the Fed is going to do already. So I say it again, it might be built into the market. So we may see the Fed go 50 and maybe another 25 or 50 that other 50 could have impact, but the impact's not going to be immediate. But your point is important that the market's already anticipating this differentiation. You know, they're anticipating that U.S. rates will end up maybe three quarters of a percent higher than Canadian rates. So that's important. That's why the Canadian buck, you know, went back into that 72 cent range again, because it was already saying they're going to get that differentiation. But it'll be very interesting going forward, because I think this is, uh, you know, as we keep saying, it's a rock and a hard place. Because if the U.S. goes again, and as you said, Powell said, uh, Chairman Powell said, we could go further and faster than people are guessing right now. Well, 
Canada doesn't look like it's there. Well, then you presto, you get that Canadian dollar maybe nudging down further, which makes every U.S. import more expensive. Anybody who travels to the state understands that uh, commodity prices. So that's inflationary. And this is, again, there's no easy solutions here. There isn't, Mike. And, you know, we say commodity prices, it's a broad brush, but let's look at what it's going to impact. Groceries, it's going to impact natural gas, it's going to impact oil, gasoline, it's going to impact fertilizer. Like everything is priced. All these commodities worldwide are priced in U.S. dollars. So it it can be a very, very uh, impactful uh, thing that takes place here if the United States dollar becomes more expensive versus the Canadian dollar, everything we buy in U.S. dollars is going to impact us and impact inflation. Well, I looked at that, you know, in the fourth quarter of uh, last year, they had a 13% increase in uh, import prices, you know, and and the Bank of Canada itself said a lot of that had to do with a weaker dollar because this time last year, if we were talking, Mike, we were talking 79 cent dollar, not 72 and a half. Maybe even, you know, we budged 80 in the next, you know, coming up to uh, April in 2022. So that's a big drop. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously, and I don't, I don't want to leave everybody with the impression, Mike, there's only one variable, and that's interest rates. I mean, obviously, war has money pouring into, uh, you know, the uncertainty of war around Europe had money pouring into the U.S. for a, a great deal of the time. There's other factors involved, but it just seems right now the markets are so focused on interest rates. Two things, Mike. Number one, have to remind our listeners and almost ourselves is that money goes where money gets the best rate, the best rate of return. And if the U.S. keeps doing that, the U.S. is going to attract money that possibly could have come to Canada and other places. But the other thing I just want to touch on before we go, Mike, is recession. That word now is back and it's back in capital letters. And um, the fact is U.S. analysts, the ones that you and I look at and say, you know what, these are guys that bring a lot of credibility, women that bring a lot of credibility to the table. And they're being looked at seriously. And now they're starting to talk, not just recession, but hard landing. And those are two words you and I are going to be talking about. And that hard landing, if it comes about is could seriously negatively impact equity markets so in the days and weeks to come i'm not only looking at inflation but i'm looking at impact to the stock markets because that becomes less a variable and more a certainty yeah and i think that's straightforward you know the market was getting very keen on the idea that the the rates had had peaked and now we're going to go down now that's clearly changed and powell has changed that it's back to what we had talked about ages ago which is why were people doubting his word they said they were going up until they can get inflation under control it's not under control and they now he's been very very crystal clear we're going up and it may be faster than we thought so yeah, there's going to be lots to talk about, whether it's hard, soft, or in between, but there will be lots to talk about as the markets react to the interest rate scenario. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate the time. You have a great weekend. And you too, Mike. And I've got to tell you that that polar plunge, I looked at the videos. I was very, very impressed that somebody of your age could do that. <laughs> Good, on you. You By the way, Good on you guys. Good on you guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you for not adding your weight, your your age and weight. So yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, good on. I'll get good on you. Good on you. Time now for the quote of the week. 
Well, of course, China's been top of the news cycle here, of course, with allegations about election interference, but that's nothing new. I mean, for what, a dozen years, we've been getting warning from CSIS about Chinese interference, whether it's in our academic side, uh, you know, in the university communities, whether it's spying, whether it's cyber attacks, that list is a long one. And it's one that, of course, has been appreciated throughout the Western world. I mean, it's nothing new to people in the U.S., in uh, New Zealand, and Australia, and Europe, etc. But the question is, how have we dealt with it? Have we dealt with the threat of China seriously enough? And that brings me to the quote of the week. Admiral Michael Studeman, commander of the Office of U.S. Naval Intelligence, he says in quotes, to be honest, it's very unsettling to see how governments are not connecting the dots on our number one challenge. History tells us a messianic leader with central control in charge of a totalitarian society with grievances and with a lot of hard power at their disposal and with ambition to change the international system to their preferences, that you put that in combo together. That represents one of the most dangerous trends in geopolitics, and that's what we're facing. And arguably, it's a tougher tougher problem than what we were facing in the Cold War with the Soviet Union because the Chinese economy is so large and economically powerful and interdependent and tied into the global economy. Well, I guess each one of us can decide if we're taking that threat seriously. I think there's too many questions regarding what Canada's been doing with that, but I'll leave that to you. And there's certainly going to be further revelations about Chinese interference in Canada, but what's the end game? Is it going into Taiwan? As they've warned several times, as Xi Jinping has said, that's their ambition. What are their fallout from that, the repercussions for that? Well, are we taking all of that seriously enough? Well, that's the question. And one that Admiral Michael Studeman says, the answer is no. There's so much happening in the crypto space right now. I feel like I'm opening up uh, different feeds every day talking about another challenge that's going on. Obviously, that's been the story since June. Well, one of the places I go is the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast. And I've got one of the co-hosts with me, uh, Joey Tramprilli with me. Joey, first of all, appreciate you finding time. It is a busy time there. I mean, do you feel the same way uh, that just stuff is just coming at you all the time? Like this, this company has a problem. That company has a problem. It's, uh, first of all, a pleasure to be here again with you and your listeners, Mike. It's good to take a break from shoveling snow here in Southern Ontario today. We're recording Friday about midday and it's a mess out there. Uh, as far as the crypto and Bitcoin space, what a week, uh, and ongoing, obviously as we, as we speak here, sort of watching continued unwind, continued contagion. Um, it does feel like we're drinking from the hose a little bit here, uh, as I'm sure some of your listeners feel as well. Well, a contagion seems to be the word. You know, that uh, this is a case where, you know, if one company goes, maybe in another business, someone might think, hey, great, that's a chance for us to get more customers. I'm not so sure that's the impression right now. It's, oh, great, we're going to be under more scrutiny. Well, I I look at uh, what is basically the top story in crypto right now, the Silvergate news and the unwind related to Silvergate. I'm of different opinions, I think, than maybe some traditional finance uh, minds. You know, Mike, in crypto and Bitcoin, and I'll lump them together here for uh, for the sake of sort of continuity of the conversation, banks are being discouraged, specifically in the United States, uh, from dealing with Bitcoin and crypto. And when I say banks, what I really mean is the monsters, the monoliths, the the stuff that drives the financial sector in the U.S., the too big to fail types, as it were. There's There's a lot of problems with that from sort of a principle and ethic standpoint, but from a pragmatic standpoint, the problems are greater and more consequential, and immediately so in this case. 
I want you to consider a system where only a few banks are able to get over the hurdles to provide quote unquote crypto or Bitcoin services. It's not that JP Morgan can't get over those humps or Chase can't get over those humps. It's that it's so expensive and the pressure, as you mentioned, so great that it's not worth running a traditional bank with a crypto arm, let's say, or a Bitcoin arm. Instead, you get these, uh, we'll call them boutique banks. And there's only a few of these boutique banks, right, Mike? So what, what happens is people who want to deal in crypto tokens, Bitcoin, uh, other sort of you know tangentially related things in the space, we, we end up with a very concentrated group of institutions who are dealing with this stuff. And normally, that wouldn't raise a lot of red flags. But when you think about the volatility in Bitcoin and crypto, what do you see? You see monster swings like we've seen in the last 24 hours, maybe 48 hours by the time this is released. And when that happens, the contagion, you know, maybe quote unquote contained, but it's amplified. Silvergate was a pub publicly traded company as well. So it's not like these guys are not regulated as some, I think, American politicians would have you believe. So if, if you kind of unwind this, what does it mean? You have uh, first world governments. I'll point to America because Silvergate's an American bank, but it's happening here in Canada and it's happening in Europe as well. You have governments pointing banks away from crypto. And so crypto banks have to deal with, I don't want to call them second rate institutions, but they're certainly not as financially sound as the monsters are, nor are they as protected uh, as the monsters are. So you have that problem. And when those banks have problems, Mike, and people are hurt, investors are hurt, depositors are hurt, the associated companies are hurt, we have the same politicians who forced clients into the hands of those banks and force those banks away from a lot of the same supports that the monoliths get, those politicians are then saying, well, I'll tell you what the problem is here. It's Bitcoin. It's crypto. This is the equivalent of sort of yelling fire in the movie theater. And then when, when everyone leaves, they say, well, the problem is that you shouldn't have movie theaters where everyone can just run out like this. And there's a huge problem. A contagion uh, starts. Th there's a problem with the incentives there, Mike. Uh, and politicians, I think, really need to take a look in the mirror and say, what are we protecting people from by doing this? The answer, in my view, is nothing. Well, it's interesting. My, my opening comment, of course, was talking about a similar situation with groceries. I mean, I won't go into it again, but, you know, like government doesn't want to talk about the fingerprints that they have all over prices. And in this case, uh, you know, they help create the problem. And of course, they'd never admit to that. I, I'm just wondering if politicians wouldn't just want to close their eyes and wish it all away. You know, that they don't want the competition. And that's something I've been worried about from the get go is that, of course, they control monetary policy. That's one of their biggest weapons. And, you know, crypto's outside of that space or Bitcoin is outside. And, and I appreciate your distinction uh, earlier that there's so many aspects to this and it's not so simplistic as to just say Bitcoin all of a sudden. But I'm just saying I'm not so sure they are overly simplistic looking at it, too, but I, I think they'd wish it to go away. I think you're probably right. It's interesting you bring this up. There was a news release, I believe, last night or the night before. Again, things happening so quickly here. I'm having trouble keeping track of the yeah. uh, the drops. But the Biden administration is looking to implement a 30% tax on crypto mining. They're going to include Bitcoin in that because yeah. you know even if they knew any better, they wouldn't make a distinction. You know, to me, what what does what does this say about the current administration's desires, and maybe more importantly, what does it say about their fears? Well, if I look at Bitcoin mining, I see, you know, friends of mine, for example, kind of hobbyists who have Bitcoin miners in their home and they use them for things like space heaters, clothes dryers. They're, they're just as efficient. They can be tuned in a way that makes sense to uh, sort of preserve 
power during peak times, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of different levers you can use with a Bitcoin miner that you can't use with a traditional space heater, for example, or a traditional dryer, mm-hmm. all these other kind of uh, traditional tools. So are you going to really tax the hobbyist on his space heater or dryer? I don't know. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Then I think about why would they want to tax Bitcoin mining under the guise of energy consumption? Mike, we, we saw this in 2021. You know, Your listeners may, may not be familiar, but there was a, a broad ban on Bitcoin mining in China back in 21. And in 221, what we saw was the Bitcoin network security, the hash rate, as it were, the metric that measures security uh, based on the number of miners online, dropped significantly for a very short time. And those miners relocated, dispersed all over the world. And before we knew it, we were back at an all-time high in hash rate. So you could think about what that means. People are not only willing to uh, take the miners offline very, very quickly, but probably, Mike, most of them had a plan to either sell them or, or reestablish them in some other geographic location. The resiliency of the network is incredible. And a ban on mining in the States or a 30% tax on mining in the States uh, is not going to change the outcome. What it will do, uh, you know, to your... To, what it will do to just to continue down this road is push the energy consumption into places that are less regulated. Would you rather have miners in Mongolia, for example, or would you rather have them in the States? My guess is that as much as I may disagree with some of the energy regs in the States, it's a lot cleaner to use and, and as it were, mine for energy in the United States than it is in Mongolia. And so you're not really doing anything for the environment. You're just amplifying a problem you already have, which is that no one else cares about the green regulations except for the modern democracies. It doesn't make things better. I, I also will just add this last point. There is a clear inverse correlation in the amount of energy that the US dollar is forced to expend to continue its hegemony abroad. The less people want to use the US dollar, the more wars, the more bloodshed. It has to happen this way. The United States doesn't talk about this much, but anyone who can sort of make that deductive reasoning will come to the same conclusion. The less adoption, the more force required, the more energy required. In Bitcoin, Mike, it's the opposite. As the energy consumption goes up, it's because adoption is going up. It's because people who, are, who want to use it, go, it, the number is going up, right? The, these two things are not talked about side by side often enough. And I think that that's to the detriment of Bitcoiners. We should be talking about that a lot more because it's hard to argue with that distinction. Mm-hmm. Where do you, I mean, and again, I'm asking for these sort of uh, Barbara Walters, like this is a sophisticated issue, but you know, I look at uh, one of my big worries all the way along was the level of regulation that the governments would Im- employ. You just gave us a great example of that. And I'm glad you brought that up, but all the way around, they, you know, if Something's going to change here, I think. And I'm just worried about individual investors. Uh, I'm not looking for advice. I'm just looking for what landscape do you think they'll face if you close your eyes and come back a year or two years from now? It's a good question. There's a a lawsuit that uh, is developing right now. The New York Attorney General is suing a exchange called KuCoin. And KuCoin is one of many exchanges that offers a number of these alt coins. uh, and, And among them, they offer Ethereum to investors and to, to people who want to trade the assets. The New York Attorney General's office is citing something called the Martin Act, which is, I think, a hundred-year-old law that, you know, it's it's more or less the same as the Howey test, Mike, if, you're, if your listeners are familiar with that. Can you expect that the efforts of a third party, a centralized third party, will increase the value of your investment over time? And they're making this claim against Ethereum. They note they noted, though, that Bitcoin doesn't fall under this distinction. And so... The thing that I think 
people who are investing in crypto assets not named Bitcoin have to ask themselves is, and this is a difficult question to ask because there is a distinction between what was Ethereum when it launched and what is it now. It's more decentralized now, but I think ultimately still falls under a security umbrella. What these people need to ask themselves is, if I'm looking for new money, if I'm looking for an investment vehicle that makes sense as far as transactional value, and if I'm looking for an asset that doesn't have a central body that can be pressured and forced to comply with governments, I can't find it in Ethereum. None of those things are happening in Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't have a, you know, a president, a CEO, a foundation. Um, it's very much decentralized. And so the question that we need to ask as far as your comment about come back in 10 years, I think Bitcoin is going to be around in 10 years. In fact, I'm almost sure. Ethereum, you know, Mike, the three to five year time horizon is looking foggier and foggier by the day. Uh, an important point, though, for individuals is, uh, you know, this is an attractive investment vehicle. Generally, again, I know I'm being too broad on that, but attractive investment vehicles dealing with people's concerns about, you know, the over creation of money and that's still going on, you know, momentarily, government regulation, et cetera. And the other distinction you made between uh, developed nations and, and third world, I don't see it going away. I mean, what's your currency alternative in about 125 nations? And so I, I see that possibility expansion there. Plus, U.S. regulations aren't going to change that. You know, they're not going to be able to reach into Africa, reach into South America in some parts. Right. The The Sovereign Individual thesis, you know, The Sovereign Individual, for your listeners who don't know, is a book uh, written some time ago, I think 20 plus years ago now, basically wholly writ in Bitcoin circles. Um, and you, you're bringing up there something that m- most would just refer to as, you know, geographic arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Um you, you, you want to be part of a nation or a citizen of a nation that supports the things you care about, F- fiscal responsibility, not overprinting, not overpromising on entitlements, making living affordable. Um, you know, I hate to say it, Mike, but it's, it's all, you know, these are all things that I think in Canada right now, you're seeing cracks in some of these things, some of these ideals. These are things that made Canada what it is today, and we've gotten away from that. And so, you know, the sovereign individual thesis is interesting in that the one thing that was always missing, even as we grew uh, the, the capability to work from anywhere, even as we grew the capability to have, have you know, to be productive writing lines of code as opposed to producing a car, even as we grew the capability to be international as people, we we're missing the currency. The currency was always a bit of a hang up. Well, now my suspicion is that governments are looking at this as they continue to apply oppressive tax regimes continue to put the clamps down on innovation, continue to put the clamps down on things like home ownership and capital formation, topics you address all the time, people are going to start to look and say, we have another alternative here that wasn't prevalent before, wasn't a sure thing before. And Bitcoin, to me, Mike, more and more looks to be that final piece to the, um, to the puzzle when it comes to being truly a sovereign individual. I think that's important. And of course, that'll create the support for it and demand going forward. But again, coming back to the distinction, that's not what we're talking about. If you're talking about some of the problems like FTX, and of course, which really put things on the front page, uh, it's a different issue and that'll also evolve. But that's the point I actually want to make, that it's a different issue. Right. Yeah. The the FTX crisis, which, which you and I spoke about in some detail in my last appearance, you know, this is ongoing. Uh, the number of tentacles that that, that collapse had you know, you and I both thought they were many in number at the time. They were even many more in number. Yeah. It's still going on. Almost every show I listen to has an FTX segment now. In fact, there's one podcast that plays the Godfather music while they introduce the latest in the saga. 
it's really become it's really become a meme of, of sorts, right? Yeah. And when when I look at FTX, when I look at Silvergate, when I look at these other institutions like Celsius, the the common theme among them, Mike, is that they follow the model that traditional banks use: fractional reserve, triple and quadruple lending. Um, you know, it, play, playing games with financialization that cost their customers. The only difference, okay, to return to my my earlier point, is that the protections that the monoliths enjoy are not there for those yeah. smaller companies, are not there for those crypto banks. Now, I'm not suggesting they should be. My, my suggestion would be to narrow the scope of focus in the products you are able to offer to your clientele and, and put safety and protection before you put you know monster profits, let's say, or whatever the case is. But at the end of the day, the models... The models that are working are the ones that embrace, you know, full reserve, uh, embrace no yield product, n- none of this stuff, right? This sort of fancy, uh, fancy earn uh, tokens and whatnot, the flywheel, as it's been called for the last few months. The the stuff that's working are the um, the ones related to to sound money principles, and uh, I think you're going to continue to see that. Well, yeah, that's that last phrase is exactly what I continue to think about when I get bombarded on a daily basis with this, like the old serials, to be continued. This is a story <laughs> that's got a lot more legs, and I'd invite people to go and listen to the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast, where you, of course, keep up to date on this on a momentary basis. But yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating world. I think it's a, a glimpse into the future, and you do a fabulous job on that podcast of explaining and exploring all of that, and I appreciate you finding time for us today. It's my pleasure, Mike. Anytime. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I was looking at a recent Leger poll done in conjunction with the Fraser Institute, and it found that nearly three quarters of Canadians think their overall tax bill is too high. I'm wondering what the other quarter are thinking. Although I suspect that most of us can't list the number of taxes or transfers to government that we actually pay. Instead, not naturally, we focus on income tax. Uh, which represents about 60% of the overall tax bill on average or something, but hey, there's 40% more. And of course, that will vary according to one's income level. But let me give you a few examples of taxes other than income tax or sales taxes and uh, that kind of thing that we actually pay to government. I mean, we pay excise taxes, for example, on specific goods, such as alcohol and tobacco. We've got healthcare premiums in some provinces. We've got fuel taxes, of course property taxes, land transfer taxes, uh, business taxes, uh, parking taxes and fees, amusement taxes and fees. As I said, that's only a partial list, but it gives an idea. And yet in the federal government's case, they still manage to run huge deficits despite record tax takes. But that brings me to my shocking stat of the week. Not that cheerful. I'm just telling you on April 1st, the tax on beer goes up by 6.3%. Currently, before the latest, this is before that tax increase, about 47% of the retail price of beer sold in Canada is due to various taxes and levies like federal and provincial excise taxes or sales taxes and container deposit fees. But 47%, and we're jacking it up. When it comes to hard liquor, I think most people would be surprised. I mean, the take is higher. The federal excise tax on distilled spirits, and I'm talking like whiskey, vodka, gin, rum, tequila, brandy, well, it's much higher. For example, the taxes on a typical bottle of scotch in Canada can account for a shocking 60 to 80% of the retail price. So as we come to income tax season, of course, we'll focus on it. But remember, that's not even close to the whole story.
You know, maybe I should have put the theme to today's show as something, We Won't Be Fooled Again, the old Who song. And that's because when you look at all these major things, as I was alluding to earlier, whether it's our grocery costs, the energy costs, the housing costs, etc., you know, government plays a huge role, but you rarely hear them, if ever, that's probably more accurate, if ever, saying the role that they play. Well, I got to get Ozzy Jurek in here right now because there's a new study this week that sort of helped me out with that uh, with that statement. Uh, Ozzy, first of all, as you know, I've been banging that drum for a while, but when people start talking about affordable housing, I don't look any further than all the different ways that government increases the cost, including for first-time homeowners. Yeah, and it isn't just the government, in fairness. I mean, the organization Point2 took the 50 most popular cities in Canada, and then they particularly looked at two categories. One was upfront costs, and an annual recurring cost, because we forget, we think there's a down payment and we forget all the other costs, as you point out, they're government, but also other costs. But so home ownership may be doable in some cities more than others. And the crazy thing is that Quebec is the clear winner. I mean, the most popular cities range from 74,000, the first year of ownership in Canada in Saguenay, Quebec, to more than five times that, Mike, in Richmond Hill at 400,000. I mean, it just is a real stunner when you take a look, two cities not too far apart, coming up with this enormous difference in what it costs to buy a house and then pay the first year's costs. What kind of things did, did they include in this study? I know they rated, what, the top 50 cities or, or the 50 Canadian cities. And it's what I liked is they were talking about, hey, you got the house. Now what about the cost in that first year? Well, so clearly down payment is the biggest portion. You know, the more yeah. expensive a house is, the down payment, but the down payment, then the legal costs, your lawyer, the home inspection costs, the costs of appraisal, the costs of insurance, and then the transfer taxes where there are none in Edmonton and where they are everywhere else uh, pick a, a big part, you know. so And then, of course, they pick the first mortgage payments. And, of course, since you had the larger mortgage is, the more... It's logical that it's higher, but the difference are astounding. Even in insurance can be as low as $750 and as high as $3,000, depending on where you live. Yeah, does it make any explanation of why that would be? I, I just heard you. It depends on what city you're in, but what's the rationale for one city being, let's say, significantly more expensive than another? You know, the crazy thing is, you know, I looked at Edmonton is less than 2,000 months of closing costs. I mean, $2,000 in closing costs. Okay, Edmonton, great. So you would expect to honor to be what? 6,000? Mm-hmm. 8,000? 10,000? No, it's 29,000. Yeah. In Vancouver, it's 23,000. I mean, hello. I mean, I understand the difference, but it just, it just makes my hair go up. And clearly in St. John's, Newfoundland, it has the lowest insurance at $780. And primarily, though, it's the risk that the mortgage insurance company or the insurance company has at a lower priced house. So I understand mm. that. If my house is worth yeah. $2 million, it costs more to replace and all that. But that's the difference because it goes from 780 to 2600 So for the average person in Edmonton as a tenant, it would take them five years to save up a down payment and all the upfront costs. Again, 20 years or more in most Ontario cities. Mm-hmm. I, I, and again, and, and I know out, uh, people listening in British Columbia are going to be saying, yeah, we've got something called a property purchase tax. So, yeah, you finally found something you can afford. Oh, except for the government steps in and says, no, give me a big chunk of change because it's not small. Well, and it's the same in Ontario. And, and mm-hmm. that's why when you take a look at the total upfront cost in the city of Toronto, uh, and they're basing that what they have this mysterious benchmark price of only a million sixty-seven. So the main benchmark price is a 
a made-up price of everything that that has been uh, has been sold. But let's say just using that because they're using it across the country. So it's a million sixty-seven thousand. But I guess in Vancouver and Toronto, really all you can get for that is the front door. But let's say the price was a million sixty-seven. The closing costs in Toronto are twenty-nine thousand, twenty-eight thousand nine hundred. The upfront costs at two forty-two with the down payment. The annual mortgage payments are sixty-five thousand. And when you go to Vancouver, the annual mortgage payment upfront costs are two hundred and fifty-six thousand, so very close. And it's only when you get to Winnipeg now the total upfront costs are only seventy thousand, and then Edmonton similar about sixty-nine thousand, and so on. So even Ottawa is is brilliantly lower than than some of these other markets. And, and now, of course, there's other things, the ongoing costs, and, and people are now getting notices about property uh, property tax increases. And, and again, highlighted, you have to go back out to the West Coast with Surrey with a proposal of a 17% gain, which yeah. they say they're going to get down. But think about that, 17%. You know, you finally got into a home and you got a 17% tax. You know, Vancouver, I think, has come in at 10.7%. So you've got to look at property taxes, which, of course, as again, there are some uh, urban centers with much lower property taxes than uh, some others. So, again, that's another cost, ongoing cost of when you finally get into a home. Well, and, and like I said, you know, the world, the, the, the numbers, I'm, I'm going to write about it in my OSBAS. The numbers are so confusing it. It boggles the mind. In Toronto, for instance, right now, the board reports a 49% decline in sales, but it says actually an 8% increase if you look at uh, January over February numbers. So what that means is that whatever number you read, you think, oh, well, that's not too bad. But when you took, take the average average price in Vancouver, I mean, not average, but the price that's is really the Maple Ridge to Lions Bay, condos, houses, and whether they're in Coquitlam on the west side, all put together, and that is now this this benchmark or this price at a million sixty. Well, if you go to the west side of Vancouver, it's three point six million. In North Vancouver, it's two point six million. So whatever numbers we just quoted for Vancouver, they're much much higher. Yeah, I mean, it just makes your head swim. And and again, I, I guess I rail against. All this talk from politicians complaining about affordable housing. Now, that's where I'm coming back to. You know, and if we took the development costs, if you're creating a new home, all of the different uh, taxes that go onto that are levies, what have you. I mean, and it's three levels of government we're talking. You know, but even that you've got new construction material. Oh, let's throw a little uh, uh, GST and PST on that. Again, other than Alberta doesn't have the PST. But it's just complicated and government, I guess my final statement is, it's just clear that government adds thousands and thousands upon dollars to the purchase price and then thousands upon thousands of dollars when you actually are in the home and the cost of ownership as you go forward. And that's the point is that, that you're making so well and have been making for a long time. It's simply you make a development and now you think, oh, well, it's X amount of the, the, the costs there. But then the city says, well, you actually have to have concrete sidewalks all around, you have to allowance for park, you have to do this, you have to do all of that stuff in the end adds to the cost of the unit that you're buying. It's nothing affordable about it anymore. And I guess it just pushes my button. It's like a red flag to a bull. And that is just, you know, be straight with me, you know, if you're in government, yeah. if you're a politician, just give me the straight goods. 
don't spin it, but especially the spin is so hard when it comes to a caring about affordability that, uh, you know, as I say, people can just pass out when they start looking at the size of the numbers. It's just flat isn't true. Government is a problem when it comes, I mentioned earlier, to food prices. You know, I talk about energy all the time, and in this case, in housing, and uh, I just want to make people aware of it. And uh, so, yeah, this study just is another further emphasis that, hey, it's not just getting into the house, it's what you do once you're there. Yeah, actually, if you take the point two, the two, the number point two, take a look at the total study, and it'll, it'll raise your eyebrows. Yeah, there, there you go. That's the kindest way to put it. Ozzy, let me just once again congratulate you for the polar plunge. I hope people went on our website and had a look at you. Uh, as you said, you did not fall leaving the water. I want to make that clear. Ozzy yes, told me yeah. he was kissing kissing mother earth oh, yes yeah. yes and i don't know why they keep sending me pictures always of me face planting you know when i have had such stately beautiful style as i walked into the absolutely but, but a lot of people thought we actually didn't go in they didn't realize we were just looking at the water then we'd walk back from the car and then we did no don't you have to watch the whole video because of yes. being accused of saying the wrong thing no no we did dive in the water and both mike and gordon did a swan dive. I mean, you know, the head under and the whole thing, you know. Yeah, I thought I was very, very eloquent, but then outdone by you as you exited the water and said, Mother Earth, let me play, let me give you a plant a big fat wet one on your on your sand. <laughs> yeah. Ozzy, congratulations. Great stuff. We'll talk with you next week. Thanks, Mike. And remember, Arthur Clark says, I don't believe in astrology. I'm a Capricorn and we're skeptical. <laughs>
news, which came out on Friday, and it was stronger than expected, was like lost, uh, given two other things. On Tuesday and Wednesday, Powell was in front of Congress testifying, a, a normal a schedule event, by the way, and he was just much more hawkish than the markets were expecting, talking about, or the market took it to mean that interest rates are going to keep going higher and stay higher for longer. So we had that on Tuesday, Wednesday, and then coming out on Thursday, I guess sort of rumors on Thursday about the Silicon Valley Bank. And I'll tell you how fast things happened. It was kind of like rumors on Thursday and the bank was closed Friday morning. Yeah. You know, so uh, now I, I would give you this. I think people that are worried about a, a, like a run on banks everywhere are, are maybe looking at the last event we had, you know, the great financial crisis where their banks were really hit hard. Uh, and certainly the, um, let's say, call it the, the ETF that tracks uh, an index of American banks is down to a 28-month low on Friday. But the banks are in much better shape than they used to be. So... Uh, However, and this is kind of, I think, going into the weekend, people just decided better safe than sorry. Let's sell some stuff and take a look at it over the weekend. Yeah, I, I mean, and I'm just looking at, we've been talking for an age, why I thought the markets had got too optimistic and especially ignoring what Jay Powell was saying when they followed every word he said, every breath, every syllable on the way up because it suited them. And I think they're, they're getting it handed to him a little bit here because he's been consistent. And then this week, as you say, he comes out. And uh, I guess a lot of people interpreted that more negatively. You know, we are could go higher and faster, you know, and it's just interesting to me that uh, this was a risk environment, you know, that there was a lot of uncertainty, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's what the central banks are going to do, the list goes on. And I think your point's very important where, you know, going back a couple of years, yeah, but my alternative is getting half a percent. My alternative is getting 1%. Well, I'll tell you, I've happily taken advantage of 5% rates, you know, on some of the things I've done when I look for safety. And I think that's a very pertinent uh, place, especially with Powell saying they're going to go further than that. Well, you know, we, we reflect back on the, the Volcker era when we had interest rates, short-term interest rates go to 20% as he was trying to break the back yeah. of inflation. And now we've, we're all, we've soared all the way up to 5%. Oh my golly, you know, you know, Katie bar the door. Uh, but we've had this decade and a half of ultra, ultra low, virtually free money. And that was part of the case here with the Silicon Valley Bank. Their deposit rate grew so fast. I mean, they're located in Silicon Valley. Everybody, even the people, even the homeless people are millionaires. OK, and I'm <laughs> yeah. going to get censured for saying that. Sorry, I, yeah. I apologize. But, you know, they just their deposit base grew so fast they couldn't figure out what to do with all the money. You know, so they were throwing it around and they got in trouble, obviously. When money is cheap, people make bad decisions about how to spend it. Uh, let's talk one more thing before we go. I, I just want to get your take on gold. I, You know, it was very strong during the week. I guess I was somewhat surprised by the degree of strength that it showed. Well, gold was just the inverse of the U.S. dollar this week. So the U.S. dollar was bid aggressively higher. Uh, I think we've traded up to a three or four month high following Powell's testimony. You know, U.S. rates are going higher and higher. And so gold made a low. Uh, turned around from those lows and rallied about $60. Uh, on the banking worries that we had going into the end of the week as the U.S. dollar weakened. 
So it's been a, a yo-yo kind of week in terms of price action, whether you're looking at interest rates, the stock market, the gold, the U.S. dollar. And uh, of course, as you might expect, a volatility here, which, uh, you know, we talked about the key turn date at the beginning of February. Volatility was at a one-year low. Well, I'll tell you, it's just like off the charts here uh, going into the end of the week. Well, there's not going to be any shortage at all of things to talk about as we go. I mean, the volatility has been the theme for us, you know, for ages now uh, because of the nature and the structure of the market. But people can get updates on this by going to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Vic, you've had a busy week. I suspect that's not going to be your last one. Thanks for taking the time with us. It's always a pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Arguably the most, well, I think important criticism leveled at government and medical establishment during COVID was that in far too many cases, politics trumped science as the rationale behind restrictions. And people who shared that concern, I'll tell you, got a load of ammunition over this past week as the number one tennis player in the world, Novak Djokovic, was not allowed to go into the U.S. to play in this week's BNP Paribas Open in Palm Desert, as well as next week's uh, big tournament in Miami. Why? Because he has not been vaccinated. But he's had COVID on two different occasions has built up natural immunity. Now, keep in mind that even Australia, which was a big story a full year ago when he wasn't allowed to play in the Australian 2022 Open, well, he played this year and he won in the the Australian Open. But the U.S. is saying, no, you cannot come, you cannot play, despite the scientific consensus that natural immunity provides equal protection, if not more than uh, RNA vaccines. That's a conclusion reached by the prestigious medical journal Lancet in a recent study, reviewed 65 different studies from 19 different countries and concluded in quotes, our analysis of the available data suggests that the level of protection afforded by previous infection is at least as high, if not higher than provided by two dose vaccinations using high quality RNA vaccines. Well, the Biden administration says no. The study's senior author, Dr. Christopher Murray went on to say, The study, in quotes, supports the idea that those with a documented infection should be treated similarly to those that have fully been fully vaccinated with high quality vaccines. I mean, their conclusions, by the way, match that of 160 other studies, all reaching the same conclusion. As John Hopkins, Dr. Marty Macari states, that was also the observation of nearly every practicing physician during the first 18 months of COVID. And yet the U.S. government continues to deny the science and in this case, deny entry into the U.S. to Novak Djokovic. This is in sharp contrast to the Biden administration allowing literally millions of illegal migrants into the U.S., especially through that southern border, who are not vaccinated. I mean, you can see how that might rile some people. But the point being that this is all about politics. And maybe a heaping helping of vindictiveness, I think maybe aimed at arguably the highest profile person to refuse to be vaccinated. I mean, whatever the reason to deny Novak entry into the U.S., it clearly has nothing to do with the science. And as I said, that's been the worry and the observation of many medical professionals on both sides of the border from the outset of the pandemic. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. And again, let me just salute all of those people. What did I say? It was 300 and 
79 different people listening to Money Talks who donated to the Special Olympics, who donated to our Polar Plunge. I'll tell you, nothing puts a bigger smile on my face. Uh, obviously, I care about that subject and that issue, but it's also to see people coming together for the good of the community, good of the country, and you know, putting a little bit of their money where their mouth is and caring about someone else. And it made it a heck of a lot more fun. So I want to finish today on such a positive note because I think of that and I think, my goodness, that's the best part of Canada. I hope you go out and have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.